Support for WABE comes from the Community Foundation for Greater Atlanta. You can go beyond giving to impact. Learn more at cfgreateratlanta.org. I'm Erlon Woods. I'm Nigel Poor. We're the hosts and creators of Ear Hustle from PRX's Radiotopia. Ear Hustle is a show about life inside prison, but it's not your typical prison podcast. In this next season, we've got stories about the objects people keep inside their prison cells. About residents in a women's prison who say they want to stay there. And the most beautiful prison garden. Erlon, I will never forget it. Ear Hustle. Stories about life on the inside told by those who live it. Find Ear Hustle wherever you get your podcasts. From WABE in Atlanta, welcome to this Monday edition of Closer Look. I'm Rose Scott. Coming up in just a moment, this week as budget hearings are underway at the state capitol, what legislative matters will the Georgia Budget and Policy Institute be monitoring? Medicaid full-on expansion would garner much more federal dollars support for the program and reach more than uh, half a million people or nearly half a million people. A conversation with Taifa Butler, president and CEO of the Institute. That's coming up in just a moment. But first this, a day ahead of the inauguration of President-elect Joe Biden, the nation's capital and local governments across the country are on high alert. Now here in Fulton County, officials have announced their facilities located in downtown Atlanta will be closed today and tomorrow. Virtual services for all offices will be available. And over in DeKalb County, courtrooms are also closed. Now, despite a lot of concerns, it was fairly quiet at our state's capital this weekend. In other news, the United States is nearing 400 million coronavirus-related deaths. According to Johns Hopkins University, the nation's death toll is currently 398,879. Here in Georgia, 11,095 have died due to the virus. And in total, 684,763 COVID-19 cases in total have been confirmed in Georgia. And of those, 46,741 people have been hospitalized. And now 7,964, well, they were considered ICU admissions. As always, this is according to the Georgia Department of Public Health. And now this, as multiple states, including Georgia, now have confirmed newly reported cases of that coronavirus variant. And this at a time where states are still trying to work out challenges to distributing the new coronavirus vaccines. Well, joining me now, as he often does, to discuss all of this is WABE health reporter and host of the podcast, Did You Wash Your Hands? Sam Whitehead. Sam, as always, thanks for taking the time. Hey, Rose. Good to be with you. Now, I know you've been monitoring the Georgia Department of Public Health's budget hearings, which so much of this is going to be tied to, obviously, COVID-19. What came out of the meeting you just witnessed? So we heard from Dr. Kathleen Toomey this morning. She heads the Georgia Department of Public Health, um, laying out the uh, budget for her department for this year, specifically what she's going to be asking lawmakers for. The big takeaway, Rose, and this was kind of surprising to me, there's not a lot of asks here. Um, Dr. Toomey spent a lot of time this morning running over what the Department of Public Health had done to respond to the pandemic for this past year. She says a lot of that money, nearly all of the money to fund those efforts has come from the federal government. And the money that she's asking for from state lawmakers for this next year, little or none of it is going to go to address COVID. Um, The state really seems to plan on still relying on federal dollars for their response here. 
Hmm. Did lawmakers have some questions regarding the little ask? I guess if you're a lawmaker and someone's not asking for a lot, you don't have any questions, I guess. Rose, most of the questions regarded the vaccine. Lawmakers saying, I've heard from constituents who want to get this thing. How and when can they get it? I was kind of surprised, too, that there wasn't a lot of discussion about the very little bit of money DPH seems to be asking for here. Now, it's important to understand that this is just an initial request. Uh, We saw last year, um, specifically with some health agencies, how much these budgets changed from the time that they're first presented to when they're actually turned into appropriation bills and passed. Um, So that could change, uh, but at least for now, it looks like DPH and the state of Georgia's stance is, hey, the feds and their money are gonna help us see this through. Well, speaking of the vaccination rollout, Georgia now is in, I believe, the second week of an expanded rollout. How's it going so far and what phase is this state currently in? Yeah, state officials are calling this 1A plus. Uh, 1A was originally healthcare workers and people who live and work at long term care facilities. The plus rolls in people over the age of 65 and some first responders like police officers, firefighters, those kinds of folks based on vaccine ability, uh, availability where they are. So in this second week, still not a lot of availability and still tons and tons of demand. Governor Brian Kemp said last week that the state of Georgia is only getting about 80,000 vaccine doses for the general population. Um, I talked to Gwinnett County's health director this morning. She oversees Gwinnett, Newton, and Rockdale counties. This is Dr. Audrey Arona. She said last week for her three-county district, she got 1,200 doses. So just think about that. There's nearly a million people in Gwinnett County alone. And so there's just not enough supply right now coming into the state to meet demand. Um, And it doesn't look like there's going to be much more supply, at least for the next little bit of time. So Public health officials are just really asking for people's patience. They know people want this vaccine, but we just currently don't have enough doses. For Sam, any idea in terms of numbers, how many people in Georgia have been vaccinated? So it looks like based on state records, we've had upwards of 425,000 people vaccinated. Um, but that's only about half of the doses that the state says it's received. Now, the important distinction there. Dr. Kathleen Toomey at this budget hearing this morning said the doses that have been received, most of them have all been allocated. So these are people who have booked appointments out for the next few weeks. These are vaccines that are meant to go to those people. So as of now, the state has reported about 425,000 doses. And again, state officials have, have really stressed they don't have a lot of control over what they are being sent from the federal government. They say they have little to no control over the number of doses that come uh, that come into the state. So, you know, it's a number that they say they hope will expand, that they hope to get more doses um, as more doses are made available. Um, But that really their hands are tied here with with the amount of vaccine coming into the state. Sam, to your knowledge, I guess, are all the states dealing with this? And considering that Georgia is in the top five among hospitalizations, is this just something that all the states are dealing with? You know, Rose, I would have to imagine to a certain degree, yes, Uh, you know, you really have to think about the way that these vaccines, these two vaccines have been developed, right? So it's an important distinction to know that Moderna's vaccine was developed in partnership with the federal government in Operation Warp Speed. Pfizer did not work with the federal government in the same way. And if we want to think about, you know, Moderna's uh, ties with the feds, this is this is a top-down distribution effort. Mm. Um, Pfizer's, I think, is working 
mostly the same way. Pfizer is taking responsibility for actually getting these doses out. Um, but, you know, we have this is a federal crisis, right? Mm -hmm. This is a pandemic that is affecting every state. And so I would have to imagine to a certain degree, most states are dealing with the same kind of issue. And of course, all this is happening as the CDC warns that that new, more transmissible variant of the virus that causes COVID-19 is is already starting to spread in the U.S. What's the latest there? People may have heard of this variant, Rose, uh, commonly called B117. It first gained attention after it spread really quickly in the United Kingdom in the fall. Now, the CDC put out a report last week where their modeling shows that that variant could become the dominant strain in the U.S. by March. And mm. that's pretty stunning when you consider the CDC also says um, that variant makes up less than 1% of all virus circulating in the U.S. Less than 1% now, the majority of virus in just a few months. And so the takeaway is that if things look really bad now, just wait until we have this more transmissible virus circulating. It's going to drive up cases, potentially hospitalizations and deaths. It's Sam, I know you're not a doctor, but do we know what health officials have said about then this current vaccine? Will it be effective against this variant? It's important to note first that there isn't a sense that this new variant is more virulent, more deadly. Okay. It's not expected, public health experts say, to make people sicker. Um, but even if it's just a little bit more transmissible, it's going to change the way the pandemic is growing. It's going to cause more cases, more hospitalizations. There is a sense at this point that this new variant does seem to be susceptible to the vaccine. Um, as I understand it from, from talking with people much smarter than me who, who study this thing, the way that the vaccine trains your body to recognize the virus, um, this new variant actually contains parts of the virus your body has been trained to look for, right? And so there's this hope that the current vaccines may in development that are currently available are still going to be effective against the variant, but it really raises the stakes here. If our vaccine rollout, say, doesn't pick up at the same pace that this virus is, say, more transmissible, um, it really could outstrip our ability to get people inoculated and protected. And Sam, can you believe it? It's pretty much a year since the first COVID-19 case was reported here in the U.S., what do you make of all this? I know I've asked you this on so many occasions, but it's a year now, Sam. I think at that time we don't we didn't even call it COVID nineteen. <gasps> no, so, you're right. You sat here in yeah. the studio and you gave me some long technical term. <laughs> when I think about how long it's been, where my brain inevitably goes is how much longer will we be here? Mm -hmm. I think it's really hard at this point to think about the future. The vaccines are here but the pandemic really isn't slowing down. And with this more transmissible variant, things really do have the potential to get a lot worse in some ways, even as they start to get better in some ways. So it's like a really messy time right now. There's lots of bad news out there, um, but I think lots of good news. Um, you know, I think about the year anniversary, it makes me wonder where we're gonna be a year from now. I have a little bit of optimism that come this time next year, it'll start to feel like we have our heads above water um, when it comes to getting the pandemic under control. That to me, it, it seems crazy to think about 2022 when we're just at the start of 2021. But, you know, that is the time frame at which I can allow a little bit of optimism to creep into my outlook. I think before then, um, we're still going to see a lot of challenges. We're going to see a lot of 
people getting very sick and a lot of people dying, but we're also going to see a lot of good news in that time too. So, you know, I, I still think it's, it's, we're certainly not close to being through this. Um, but I think from where I sit now, I, I can see our path to getting there. Mm. WABE health reporter and host of the podcast. Did you wash your hands? Sam Whitehead, as always, thank you so much for taking the time. I really appreciate it. Good reporting, as always. Thanks, Rose. Good to be with you. Take care, Sam. And Closer Look continues now here on 90.1 WABE. This is Atlanta's Choice for NPR. As always, I'm Rose Scott. Through his lens, Georgia Governor Brian Kemp says the state did and continues to weather the financial impact of the coronavirus pandemic. Now, during his annual State of the State address, Kemp talked about grappling with the pandemic and the state's finances. Thanks to the passage of the CARES Act, conservative budgeting, and our measured reopening of Georgia's economy, our rainy day fund remains strong. Other states are looking at further cuts to employees and essential services. For aid, they're now forced to turn to a dysfunctional and distracted Washington, D.C. But because we acted swiftly and early, the budgets my administration will propose in the coming days include no new cuts to state agencies and departments, no furloughs, no widespread layoffs to state employees, and I might add no new taxes to pay for it all. Well, that's one aspect. The other aspect was that the state's monthly revenues were consistently low last year. And overall, a $2.2 billion was slashed from the FYI 2021 budget. Still, prior to the pandemic, longstanding concerns in many areas have plagued the state, including funding for K-12 public education and fully expanding Medicaid. And as the legislative session is now underway, the Georgia Budget and Policy Institute will also be monitoring top policy priorities during 2021. Joining me now to talk more about that is Taifa Butler, President and CEO of the Georgia Budget and Policy Institute. Welcome. Happy New Year. Happy New Year to you too, Rose. Thanks for having me back. Let's begin. Of course, the pandemic is still the major concern because as the nation and states contend with the virus, that dictates a lot in terms of what can and cannot happen for many states. As it relates solely to the pandemic, Ms. Butler, what are you all paying attention to for the state's upcoming budget? What areas are you think are going to be crucial as it relates to the pandemic? Yeah, first and, first and foremost, I think how we come out of this pandemic is going to be critical. Um, and, you know, just hearing the budget hearings are happening right now as we speak and hearing the Commissioner of Public Health say that what they do in terms of the public health response is the most important thing they'll do in a century. And to see public health still undergo cuts just is dissonant to me. It doesn't make a lot of sense. And I think that's one of the most important things. How do we make sure people stay healthy, but also uh, invest in that department, particularly to make sure that the vaccinations can get out and disperse, but also that, that the community can respond in the best way. That's one of the most important things I think we're looking at is coming out of this pandemic and we're still right now at the height of infections and deaths. So to, to me, we've must address making sure people stay healthy. Well, and to that point, because there's been plenty of criticism regarding how Governor Kemp and the state responded to the coronavirus, 
Georgia is now listed fourth in the nation with COVID-19 hospitalizations. And as you just mentioned, more than 10,000 Georgians have now died to the virus. Through your assessment, how would you grade how Governor Kemp and his plan to address the coronavirus last year? And is it a direct result of what we're looking at now as it relates to those hospitalizations and even the deaths? You don't want to put the deaths at squarely at the foot of the governor, but you do have to make this correlation because it's part of how Georgia has responded. What we saw was that our public health infrastructure was already very weak and was very anemic in its response. And so to see us now at number four in hospitalizations, but then we tout at the same time we're fourth in economic recovery, it doesn't make sense. And so I'm hopeful that, you know, as we've talked about making sure people have access to health care, have access to the best treatments possible, but also that our health care infrastructure gets shored up. Grady right now is at capacity. Mm -hmm. So the things I believe that seeing this budget and also seeing public health still is not lacking enough investment to to respond is concerning to me. And then as we tout now uh, key 12 education, we still are not fully funding our schools. Um, And so, you know, we have to think about what is happening in this moment with digital learning. There are so many of our students who have not been able to connect. So we've got children that are not being educated right now. And our teachers, our educators, and our administrators don't have the resources to fully be able to do this. So, um, you know, it's disingenuous to say that there's no new cuts in this budget when there are cuts that are remaining from the last fiscal year. Uh, Like you mentioned at the top of the, the program, you know, $2 billion was cut from the budget. Now we're looking at just a billion, but those cuts still persist and we have to address the needs uh, in our state right now. And without additional revenue, we can't do that. Well, let's talk about that because considering the $2.2 billion in cuts from the last fiscal year, many thought that was welcome news, but as you mentioned education, well, let's get into that because obviously that's one of y'all's top priorities as an institute that you're looking at. And it continues now, it sort of exasperated the issues because, as you mentioned, with the virtual learning and connectivity, but even prior to the pandemic, again, K through 12 funding, that has been something that you all have repeatedly cited as an area that needs to be not necessarily improved, but revamped. What are you all hoping that the legislators can do this year? Well, there's two things that, you know, I'm looking at my daughter, who's a senior, and and her 17 years of life and her time through public education in this state, 19 of the last years, we've only fully funded two. So the last two, two of the 19 years, we've only fully funded education. And so we've got, we've disserved our students. Um, and so we can fully fund K-12 uh, with priority and with commitment. We are not touching our reserves right now, which are at an all-time uh, high just about. And we can take those dollars and repurpose uh, them to support uh, education. Otherwise, we are looking at nearly $300 million of cuts still to K-12 this year. Also, we are among eight states that do not fully fund, or actually I should say that don't fund um, poverty um, in our schools. And so there's House Bill 10 that has been offered that Mm -hmm. would 
what we're calling an opportunity wave. We've heard all over the state from administrators, superintendents, and educators that poverty is one of the biggest barriers to student success. And we don't factor that into our funding formula at all. Well, HB 10 is one of those uh, legislative proposals that we are hoping will move forward to actually factor in poverty that will help provide additional dollars for those districts that are are, are experiencing high poverty rates. Well, and connected to that, and this again is another conversation we've had before on this program as we talk about Medicaid expansion, now full expansion, which would allow more Georgians to qualify. Now, Governor Brian Kemp has implemented a waiver that partially expanded eligibility, but it also comes with some requirements. This is an annual, ongoing debate, fight, given the political party structure of Georgia's legislature, how optimistic are you there will be any movement toward this in getting Medicaid expanded? Because let's be honest, Director Butler, many people feel like it's not going to happen with a Republican-powered General Assembly here. Well, there there is additional dollars in the budget from Department of Human Services and, and, and Community Health to move forward with this Medicaid waiver. And as we've said, it, it does not do enough. There's a partial expansion that has been uh, permitted by the Department of Community, um, DHS, um, and at U.S. Department um, mm-hmm. that is allowing to expand, but it's not reaching the amount of people that need it. And Medicaid full on expansion would garner much more federal dollars uh, support for the program and reach more than uh, half a million people or nearly half a million people. Um, so this current effort that the governor has to to do this partial expansion is going to, to cost more. It has work requirements associated, which we know is from our, our racist past that says people should not get support unless they work. Um, and that is something that we have to address that, that issue. Um, there are examples all over the country that show these work requirements are a hindrance to people actually accessing health care coverage. And so why would we put additional barriers up in the middle of a pandemic when we can fully expand and serve more people, get additional federal dollars, and generate more jobs in our state? It just doesn't make sense. You all at the Institute also have a lot of recommendations regarding state income tax. We also know that that is so important in terms of the revenues for the state. One that you all recommend is getting rid of the double deduction loophole, which, as you put it, allows Georgia's highest earners to write off their state tax payments when they calculate how much state income tax they would owe. For our listeners, I mean, I understand that. How does that benefit someone who is not in that bracket? Explain it for them. How does it benefit someone that's not in that bracket? Yes. Well, if you are, if you're itemizing your taxes, uh, most people take the standard deduction, which is one amount that they can, you know, deduct from the amount of taxes owed. Mm -hmm. If you are making over 200,000, you are more than likely to itemize your taxes. Mm -hmm. And those taxes then can deduct the amount of state taxes paid um, from you owe. So it's like a double deduction. Mm -hmm. And only a few states have that. Can, we can eliminate that double deduction for that uh, population and raise nearly $200 uh, million of revenue. And then there's a couple of other revenue options that we believe are important, like the tobacco tax, um, which has bipartisan. That is my next question. <laughs> you were looking at my script. Because when it comes to the state revenues, and y'all have been talking about this for more than a decade now. I remember covering this back when I was in the WAB newsroom. The state legislature has not even come close to a compromise on raising the tobacco tax to the national average. Look, Georgia, I believe, is 50th in the nation in terms of the tax on for a pack of cigarettes. 
But again, the barrier to getting this change is the state legislature and the makeup. But now you say there's a bipartisan effort. You feel confident that this could happen this legislative session? Well, I, I, I'm hopeful, as always, Rose. Um, and, you know, the way that we've heard this posture that we didn't, we are, we've, budget writers have written this budget without additional revenues, without uh, additional taxes, to me is not solving the problem of today. Um, we are in the middle of a pandemic. There, that's still happening. There, the COVID rates are going up. And we are still uh, about a billion dollars less than we were before the pandemic in terms of this budget. And for years and years, we have prided ourselves on being a low tax state, number one place to do business, but yet we are at the bottom of every list when you look at education and healthcare. So to me, the priorities need to be, how do we invest in people right now, especially uh, recover from this pandemic? So I think, you know, we have common sense revenue ideas. We are, to your point, third lowest in the nation in terms of tobacco tax. If we were to raise that to the national average, that could be nearly 500 to 600 million dollars, I'm sorry. And there are health benefits to that. Um, you know, we can invest in our healthcare infrastructure. We can invest in families who are living in poverty. There are a number of things that we can do with that additional revenue. Um, Georgia, again, is one of the lowest taxing states in the nation. We were 50th in spending, I believe, two years ago. And we are in need of additional support, especially for our services. Uh, what One of the things, Rose, that really concerned us with the pandemic was we are 12 years out of the Great Recession. And when you look at data for black and brown Georgians, their wages haven't come back before, you know, in terms of the Great Recession. Our budget right now, we are not even at pre-Great Recession levels in terms of our, of our budget spending. So we need additional revenues to meet the moment. And if we are not doing that, we are talking out of both sides of our mouth about how we're recovering and how we're helping families. And we're still cutting the budget today. Right now, there is talk in terms of another way for the state to receive revenue is, of course, through casino and gambling. Do you see that as a viable revenue source for the state or you have some some concerns about that as well? Yeah, casino gambling, revenue from casino gambling is not stable, is not adequate and it's not fair, period. Full stop. I mean, when we looked at these, the casino industry, especially in a pandemic, especially in times of recession, it is one of the most volatile industries. We've seen that in other states that heavily rely on casino gambling and revenue. Um, you know, job losses, it, it would be a challenge for families and also small businesses uh, tend to be harmed by the casino industry overall. So I think um, we can't raise revenue for the sake of raising revenue. It needs to be fair and it needs to be adequate. Um, and that's one of the things that we will look at always in terms of equity. I want to go back to education for a moment because I noticed you mentioned the legislation that could be helpful, but you also had a problem with House Bill 60, which is this proposed school voucher bill that would divert public dollars to private schools. We've been down this road before <laughs> as well. Why do you all view that as being problematic? Well, there's a couple of things. One, uh, for students with disabilities, uh, if they were to take their public dollars to a private institution, they will lose their federal dollars. That Their, their federal dollars will not go with them. So technically, they will lose uh, if they go with their voucher. And they will also lose some of the federal protections that are in, uh, you know, the 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 federal guidance for them and their education. Secondly, one of the things that's most concerning for us is that they've added students who are not in schools with face-to-face -face instruction. Mm -hmm. And to me, 
we're punishing schools who are choosing to keep children safe um, by staying in a digital environment. And that just uh, is contrary to our values, uh, quite honestly. So why would we expand a voucher to students who are not getting face-to-face -face instruction in public schools, but that they can take those dollars and go into a private uh, digital distance learning uh, environment? So to me, Rose, this is very clear, uh, the political motivation behind this voucher bill. And again, at the end of the day, there have been audits done on this voucher program mm -hmm. in the schools that there is no transparency and no accountability. And that's a problem to take public dollars into, into that kind of setting. Something else we need to discuss because it could impact Georgia, not just Georgia, all the states. There's a new administration coming this week, obviously, with the inauguration of President-elect Joe Biden. Do you see any positive in that in terms of what states like Georgia could now be able to receive and from a federal standpoint? I mean, we know the importance of transit and mobility and particularly its impact on lower income communities and communities of color. Looking now, there is new administration coming into Washington. Is that hopeful for a state like Georgia? Some more resources coming into Georgia. And if so, what areas? Well, I mean, what people don't realize is 30, our 33% of our budget is from federal federal dollars. Um, our education program, much of our healthcare dollars come from the federal government um, and those bigger, broader uh, federal programs like the safety net come from uh, the administration. And so if the administration is more amenable to investing in healthcare, education, poverty, uh, helping people and families you know, fare better through this pandemic, there are additional dollars that can flow to the state, particularly if another COVID package were to get presented by the Biden administration, whether it's stimulus or whether it's uh, state fiscal relief, um, that would help state and local governments be able to have additional dollars to weather the pandemic right now. 33%. I don't think a lot of people realize that. Yeah. So when we talk about our state budget, we're usually looking at our state taxes and fees. Mm -hmm. But when you look at the whole of all the dollars that the state spends, the big budget um, of, you know, federal, state and local taxes and all the other funds, 33% uh, of our programmatic work in the state is federally funded. Before we end, I want to get to something you all call the people powered prosperity that you all have come up with. For our listeners who may not be familiar with that, tell them what it's about. Yeah, so Rose, about two years ago, we launched this people-powered prosperity economic vision for the state of Georgia. And what we propose is that we need to center people in our economic vision for the state. We've long touted Georgia as the number one place to do business uh, however, um, to me, it's been a zero sum where we've chosen businesses to win and families to lose. And so we think if Georgia's going to be the strong, viable state that we want it to be, we have to have four core components, and that's educated youth. And so we're looking at policies that can really help bolster our students and their academic success. We need thriving families. So we're looking at what are the policies that can really help um, support families in, in, in need, critical need, like the safety net, but also ways that to help families be more economically mobile. Healthy communities is a, a core pillar of that prosperity plan. Um, and again, Medicaid expansion and helping people have better access to healthcare is, is a part of that. And then finally, on workforce, we've got to be able to have people get access to jobs, skills, and training um, in addition to higher ed to make sure that we can compete, right, in the South and be a great place that businesses want to come to. But we've got to make sure that our workforce is strong. And that means investing in our workforce. An area that we haven't talked about but obviously is going to be a major concern this year is when the housing eviction moratoriums are no longer in place, 
housing for people, which, again, probably points to a healthy community. Just your personal viewpoint I'm interested in, and how crucial is that going to be for a state like Georgia? Nationwide, we're talking about maybe up to 70 million households already will be impacted by this pandemic, folks needing affordable housing. That's right. That's right. And and I think, you know, for years, people have asked GBPI to do or add housing uh, into our, our policy areas. And, you know, one, housing is so much influenced by federal federal policy as well, uh, but also it's a local, locally driven uh, area because of local ordinances mm-hmm. and zoning sort of thing. But with Georgia having such a homeless crisis and an affordability crisis, again, to me is how do we make sure families can stay whole um, and in- ensure their economic security? And in terms of people's ability to be mobile, but also, you know, have wealth, housing is a core uh, sort of tool for people to be able to live safely and well, but also um, have wealth at the end of the day. And we've got to make sure that people can stay stay in their housing in terms of their own stability. And that is, to me, a local uh, and state-level response that has to happen. Um, and we need an expansion on this moratorium for sure as people are continuing to uh, you know, be threatened with evictions. It is going to be something to definitely watch out for. Taifa Butler is president and CEO of the Georgia Budget and Policy Institute. As always, thank you so much for taking the time. I really appreciate it. A lot of information we couldn't get to because you all pack a lot into your report. We'll have to bring you back. I appreciate thank it. Thank you so much. Thank you, Rose. And for those who are watching or listening, we have our annual conference on Friday where we'll go deep into the budget. So gbpi.org, they can go and register. It's free. Support for WABE comes from the Community Foundation for Greater Atlanta. If you love Atlanta, you can invest in the big picture. Learn more at cfgreateratlanta.org. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly, and Richmond Graduate University can equip you with everything you need as a licensed professional counselor while integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. That's R-I-C-H-M-O-N-T dot E-D-U. Closer Look continues now here on 90.1 WABE. This is Atlanta's Choice for NPR. As always, I'm Rose Scott. The events of the past year have led to many conversations about equity in our nation. And we always talk about those tentacles tied to our quality of life, right? But how do we turn those conversations into actionable outcomes? That's a question we've turned to often on this program. Here's part of a mission statement, achieving racial equity. It's part of the mission statement of Purpose Built Communities. It's a national nonprofit with roots right here in Atlanta. And the organization recently named a new leadership. Carol Naughton is now the new chief executive officer of, of Purpose Built Communities. And she joins me now. Carol Naughton, thanks for taking the time. I really appreciate it. Thank you, Rose. I'm delighted to be here. Before we get into the organization and educate people a little bit more about the mission of purpose-built communities, there's so much taking place right now at the time of this conversation in our nation. Coming off of 2020, we have a new administration coming in, but we're also coming off a just horrific, horrific event taking place at our nation's capital. If you can put all this in perspective for me, what do you make of all this? Oh, Rose, that, that seems to be the big question, right? Um, 
we've just come through what I think is certainly the most disturbing event in my life with regard to our country. We had a situation where armed protesters became insurrectionists um, at the bequest, at the behest of the sitting president and tried to interfere with the constitutional activities of our government in order to overturn an election. Um, we, you know, I don't know that there's any other way to describe that, but a coup d'etat. And um, you know, that, that really shakes at the fabric, I think, of our society and um, demonstrates the challenges that we've got to wrestle with. Um, I don't think we can just move forward quickly and heal. You know, we've got to really have a, I think a truth telling and reconciliation work before we can get to that healing part. Um, and we're just starting that now. Um, I'm cautiously optimistic that we have the maturity and the um, commitment to go through that process, but it'll be something new for our country. And you know, coming off last year, while we still continue on with the pandemic, but coming off last year with the calls for racial justice and then all these terms like equity and diversity mm -hmm. and inclusion. Um, so whether it's purpose-built communities or any other area, what is key to making sure that the execution happens? So um, I think the first thing is to really develop an understanding of how our current situation developed. Um, we really need to understand that the challenges that we're facing today did not happen by accident, but that they were designed, they were intentional, and they were done by our federal, state, and local government to benefit white people at the expense of black and brown people. And as we learn more about this collectively, particularly white people, needing to understand um, what's happened and how they have benefited from this system. Once we go through that process, then I think we can really be working towards building something new. And every organization, every community is on a different timeline with regard to that work. Uh, we started that work maybe five or six years ago at Purpose Built. Mm -hmm. um, while we had really been moved by the idea of fairness when we first started our work, we did not know the words equity. You know, we didn't focus on that when we first started. We thought about how do we create neighborhoods where everyone can thrive? Mm -hmm. um, and we've gone through our own process of learning about equity and making uh, an intentional effort to work with people who could help us peel back the skin of the onion, right? And start to build our own equity lens and equity muscles and to, develop a, a process where we can be challenging ourselves and the folks that we work with over time on how we keep getting stronger with regard to using those equity muscles. So it is, it's not something that we um, are expert in yet, but we are committed to getting better and better um, at this over time. And for our listeners who may not be familiar with purpose-built communities, and you just talked about how you all have had to go through another change in terms of making sure you're meeting the mission as it relates to what's taking place in our nation, just in general. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Um, purpose-built communities is a nonprofit organization that partners with local leaders around the country to improve neighborhoods so that those neighborhoods become places that lift 
everyone in that neighborhood up, where they create deep, durable pathways to prosperity for everyone. We're really, we only work where we have been invited by the community, by local leaders. And we have a very specific um, model of neighborhood revitalization uh, that is designed to move the needle on three big factors that we think when executed well and with excellence and equity, ultimately um, create neighborhoods that really are these launch pads for children and families. So we wanna move the needle on racial equity, economic mobility, and better health outcomes. Mm -hmm. And we do this with a very specific model of creating um, healthier places for people to live that include high quality mixed income housing with deep permanent affordability built in. We build a, uh, with local leaders a cradle through college education pipeline that starts with really high quality early learning. So every little genius is ready for kindergarten and able to move forward and really take advantage of a great educational experience and graduates from high school with an actionable, financeable plan for post-secondary education. And then we think about community health and wellness. Mm -hmm. And while we used to conflate health and wellness with access to medical care, we have come to realize that that's only a small part of health and wellness. Access to medical care is important, but so are access to healthy foods. So are access to parks and recreation and shade and a good environment and all the kinds of things that people with choice have always been able to think about when they determine where they're gonna live. And we think everybody deserves to live in a neighborhood that has those kinds of elements present. The, the secret sauce for this really complex long-term cross-sectoral work is what we call a community quarterback organization, mm -hmm. which is a nonprofit organization that works with a variety of nonprofits, with the community and with other partners to execute upon that plan that is developed with the community about how you would develop, how you would bring mixed income housing to a neighborhood, how you would create in your community a cradle through college education pipeline. And, and that really secret sauce of that nonprofit working long-term with the community in a cross-sectoral way um, is really one of the things that's essential in this work. It's much more than building housing. It really is about tying in all those other quality of life tentacles that we talk a lot on this program. It's tying that all together in a community. Education, workforce development, transit, right. you mm -hmm. know, health and wellness, all of that. <laughs> yeah, uh, that's exactly right. That, you know, community development like almost every other aspect of our uh, economy has been siloed historically. So we've had housers work in one corner and educators work in another and economic development people work in another and they never coordinated or worked together in a very focused way. Mm -hmm. uh, now we're seeing some of that happen at kind of the community and regional level, but historically not the neighborhood level. And so we've come to appreciate the research that has shown us that where people live and the conditions in which they live in their neighborhood is a really important predictor of their life outcomes. And so we follow that science and we follow that research and we work to create neighborhoods that, as my friend Jeffrey Canada says, you know, become platforms that blast kids off into the stratosphere mm -hmm. so that every child can really reach his or her full potential. Can you 
give us examples or a model of whether it's here in the Atlanta area. Now, often people want to point to Eastlake, and I think that mm-hmm. there are some unique circumstances there because they had a golf course. Not every community has a golf course to anchor around. If if not here in the Atlanta area, other parts of the of the nation where this concept, this model has thrived and is working. Sure, sure. Well, you're right. Our work um, is based on what we learned in the East Lake neighborhood of Atlanta. I've been working on that revitalization in one capacity or another for 26 years. Mm-hmm. So I've been able to take the lessons learned, what what worked really well, what worked okay, what we would do differently if we were starting over, and to be able to create um, new opportunities in other places in Atlanta and beyond. We support projects now in 28 neighborhoods in Atlanta, or 28 neighborhoods in the country, excuse me, including three here in Atlanta that are all very different from one another. Mm-hmm. So Eastlake, you're more familiar with, your listeners are probably more familiar with. Um, let me talk just a little bit about Grove Park and Historic South Atlanta, which are very different from one another as they are different from Eastlake, mm-hmm. although they share those same three key strategies of mixed income housing, a cradle through college education pipeline and community health and wellness with that secret sauce community quarterback helping to knit it all together. So um, uh, Historic South Atlanta is really one of our newest network members, um, but the work there has been ongoing for almost 20 years. Um, That work has been led by FCS, Focus Community Strategies um, in, in South Atlanta. And um, over the last 20 years, they've been able to create a mixed income home ownership neighborhood, which is so cool because they were able to acquire uh, houses as they came on the market in what was then a very soft market, uh, renovate them and sell them or lease them to low and moderate income families. And they've done it in a way that will ensure that those families are, uh, to the extent that they are owners, Um, sharing in the equity of um, the appreciation of those property values. So we're building wealth uh, for the families who own it. But at the same time, uh, because they have a right to purchase those properties back at the end of the day, they can keep them in the affordable housing stock. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, nobody's smarter than the folks at FCS on how you can do that in a home ownership setting. And I think it's a model that could be replicated in other parts of Atlanta and beyond. In in Grove Park, um, our work there supporting the Grove Park Foundation started about three years ago um, when we met um, some folks at a Westside Futures Fund meeting. Mm -hmm. And they were interested in Grove Park, which is a few miles beyond the core of the Westside Future Fund work. And they really liked the idea of creating that neighborhood hub around education, health and wellness, and bringing high quality mixed income housing to that neighborhood. Even a few years ago, it was evident that the market was coming, right? That you you could see it starting to come out, Donald Hollowell, you could see it coming from uh, the north side. And so how do you work in a neighborhood like that where you want to be able to preserve affordability knowing that the market is coming and so mixed income strategy is a really important strategy there as well that's always the question carol right i didn't mean to interrupt you but that's always the question you can't control the market how do you navigate through all of that and and you may want to buy property as well but the value of that property may not fit what you all can afford coming through your nonprofit thread 
So, so you are so right. I mean, the, the realities were existing in a capitalist society. And so fundamentally, we're trying to do things that the market doesn't want to do on its own. So we've got to find other ways to tackle those problems. And so sometimes that is using government dollars or um, phil philanthropy to get ahead of the market and recognize that, for example, you might want to buy land in a neighborhood because if you control land, you control your destiny. And so, so in my mind, one of the smartest things that philanthropists and uh, governments can be doing is creating opportunities to control that land directly, to own that land, even before you know exactly what you want to do with it, right? Mm -hmm. um, which is, I think, some of the challenge that some philanthropists face because they think that when they want to give money for something, they want to know exactly what's going to happen. Our advice would be, to get that land, control that land early, and then figure out what you're gonna do with it. Because by the time you figured out what you wanna do with it, you won't be able to afford it. Mm -hmm. So getting ahead of that curve is important. You know, in, in Atlanta, um, we're, and in a lot of cities, we're seeing this, you know, increased interest in people living in the cities and um, waves of money and gentrification coming. We like to think of ourselves as a hedge against some of that by trying to provide that deep permanent affordability in neighborhoods that are going to become desirable because they will be great places to live. And unless we're intentional about building that affordability piece into it on the front end, those neighborhoods will be lost to legacy residents and other low-income people who might want to use that as a platform to be able to um, raise their children and see their children have a real chance at the American dream. But one might counter that with some of those legacy neighborhoods and communities. If they aren't lost to those legacy residents, it is right there. It's about to happen. What's your response to that? So, so you're right. So you're right. There are some places that are already lost and that people have been pushed out. And my response would be as part of a sophisticated, thoughtful strategy at a city level, on how we want to deliver affordable housing. We would need to make investments in those neighborhoods that are fr frankly expensive because the property values have gone up, but that's the only way that will bring affordability back to those neighborhoods if they're already gone. Our work is more on the neighborhoods before they become, mm -hmm. um, before they're gone. How do we preserve affordability, recognizing that in many places the market will come and so we want a controlled market response, not a runaway market response. Mm -hmm. The voice you hear is Carol Naughton. She's the new CEO of Purpose Built Communities. We're talking about not only her new role, but also the organization's mission uh, after more than two decades after its founding. Uh, Carol, but because of what took place with the pandemic starting last year, did that at all impact or hinder what the initiatives you were working on? Uh, of course, I think, you know, the, the pandemic has affected so many aspects of life and because black and brown communities were hit so hard in the initial wave of the pandemic, many of the communities where we work were amongst those communities where people were dying at incredibly high rates, where people had lost jobs, where schools were closed. And so the folks that we support in those neighborhoods needed to pivot to be able to support the immediate needs of their community and, and turn their attention away for a little bit from the long game um, of rebuilding the infrastructure to meet the immediate needs. 
And so um, here in Atlanta, for example, uh, the Eastlake Foundation, the Grove Park Foundation, and FCS Urban Ministries have been working together in ways uh, and with a grant um, from the Harlem Children's Zone to Purpose Built that's being executed by those three entities to um, protect the most fragile uh, in our communities during the time of, of COVID. Everything from um, per personal protection devices, mm -hmm. masks, but also rent relief and food. And so importantly, the technology and resources to close the digital divide for both adults and children. Um, that, that to me was one of the very first things that our network members in Atlanta and beyond needed to address because all the kids went home uh, and school became virtual and not all the neighborhoods where we work, in fact, very few of the neighborhoods where we work on the front end have access to high quality internet, right? I'm sitting in my house right now, able to have this conversation with you because I've got reasonably good internet. I'll always complain about it, but it's reasonably good in the grand scheme of things. It will support the Zoom call. Most of the neighborhoods where we work, those that Zoom capacity does not exist in the internet bandwidth. So how do we help get the bandwidth to the neighborhoods, get the devices into the hands of children and adults, and then um, network members making sure that those children and the adults have the capacity to use those devices effectively has been a big chunk of this work over the last few months. You know, our, our friend David Williams says, uh, when America catches a cold, black America gets pneumonia. And that was certainly the case when we first started. And uh, now the rest of America seems to be catching pneumonia as well. And as part one of my conversation with Carol Naughton, the new CEO of Purpose Built Communities, you can hear the full conversation this Thursday on Closer Look. That's it for this edition of Closer Look, which is produced by Grace Walker and LaShawn Hudson. Our engineer is Shelley Canavy. If you missed any of the day's program, it's online at wabe.org slash Closer Look. And of course, you can listen to Closer Look weeknights at 8 p.m. And listen whenever you want, because Closer Look is now available as a podcast. Just visit NPR One or your favorite streaming app and subscribe. This is 90.1 WABE, Atlanta's choice for NPR. I'm Rose Scott. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. Local, state, national politics. WABE and NPR have the coverage you need. I'm Jim Burris, host of WABE's All Things Considered. Whether it's on the air at 90.1, streaming online, or connecting through our mobile app, WABE keeps you on top of election 2024 in what's sure to be a pivotal year in politics. And for candidates and ballot information, visit our election hub at wabe.org election 2024.